Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start this week. Danny's especially excited today to bring you the news. (laughs) (laughs) So excited, always excited. So, Derek, climate, we fixed it. Uh, Yeah, everything. uh, It's great. There's a new uh, data from the U.S. National Snow and Ice Center. The or data center rather, the, uh, based on satellite imagery, shows that uh, showing that Antarctic sea ice reached a winter maximum this year of 16.96 million square kilometers. That's great, except that it's a record low. In fact, it's more than a million square kilometers less than the previous record low. Uh, Antarctic sea ice also this year achieved a record summer minimum of about 1.79 million square kilometers back in February. Uh, So actually, we haven't apparently fixed it because this is not good. Uh, Arctic sea ice, if you're wondering, hit a summer minimum this year of 4.23 million square kilometers. That is the sixth lowest minimum ever recorded in, well, not ever, in 45 years uh, of keeping these records. Uh, I should say the loss of sea ice uh, has a lot of implications. It doesn't affect sea level rise, obviously, but white ice reflects sunlight back into space, whereas dark ocean water absorbs it. So uh, if you're worried about things like ocean heating, which is a big problem, uh, this is not great. Wear sunscreen, everybody. Derek, tell us what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, people, I mean, I'm sure people are familiar, and we've talked uh, a bit in, in past weeks about the looming, I guess, uh, Saudi-Israeli normalization agreement that's being heavily pushed by the United States and will involve uh, as an inducement for the Saudis a U.S.-Saudi defense pact. It's also going to, uh, apparently, this is uh, being worked on already, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, it will involve a Saudi nuclear program, and that's that includes a a uranium enrichment program as part of that, uh, which is something that the Saudis do not have. They don't have a domestic nuclear program as yet, uh, but they want one. Uh, It would be, uh, it it would, I guess, bring them on par with Iran, which does have, also have its own uranium enrichment program. This one would be managed by the U.S. Uh, It would include Israeli experience in uranium enrichment, uh, that they've gained from decades of not building all those nuclear weapons that they don't have. And uh, essentially, it is a massive change in in policy for, for both the U.S. and Israel because it is a gateway to nuclear weapons proliferation in the Middle East, which is something that they've always ostensibly opposed, certainly in the case of Iran. The idea, I guess, is that if the program is under U.S. management, it's based in Saudi Arabia, but it's under U.S. management. That's supposed to mitigate uh, the enrichment or the uh, proliferation risk. That might just be kind of a sop to members of the U.S. Congress who have misgivings about the Saudis potentially developing nuclear weapons. Now, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has not been shy about talking about his desire for a domestic nuclear power program. He has also not been shy 
about talking uh, about his interest in a nuclear weapons program. He always couches it in language like, well, if the Iranians were to develop a nuclear weapon, then we would have no choice but to develop a nuclear weapon. That's that, you know, that's a, a bit of massaging. Uh, it seems uh, he would not be opposed, let's say, uh, to Saudi Arabia joining the nuclear club. Uh, the Saudis did, uh, I believe, earlier this week, uh, agree to a more intrusive, uh, extensive oversight by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, the UN agency, over any of its over its nuclear activities. So uh, this could be a step toward again getting something like this put in place, a, a nuclear power program with a uranium enrichment component uh, that would meet. Uh, with the concerns uh, of the U.S. Congress and, and you know, other people who are watching this with some trepidation. The Saudis also, and this is related to the Israeli component of this, the normalization component, sent their new ambassador to Palestine, their non-resident ambassador to Palestine, Naif Asuderi, to Ramallah this week to both present his credentials to the Palestinian Authority and to uh, assure Palestinian leaders that the Saudis really care about the Palestinian issue, even as they get to the point where they are about to throw the Palestinians under the bus to cut this deal. They've said, Sudari reiterated rhetoric that's been coming out of Saudi Arabia for some time now, that they would insist as part of any normalization agreement on real Israeli concessions towards the idea of forming a Palestinian state. As Danny, I'm sure you know, the current Israeli government is constitutionally incapable of making any concessions like that. It would probably collapse before it did that. The coalition would fall apart. So really, this is a, a, a non-issue. If the Saudis want normalization and they want all these goodies from the U.S. that they're going to get as reward for normalization, then they're going to have to drop the Palestinian aspect of this. But uh, I suppose, you know, we'll see. Maybe they'll pull it off. Yeah, I have a feeling they'll drop it. Let's talk about Iran and the prisoner swap. Yes, uh, we talked about this uh, previously. The anticipated U.S.-Iran prisoner swap finally went through. Of course, uh, I was uh, out last week, but it took place last week. Uh, five previously imprisoned U.S. nationals and two uh, family members. Their family members of two of them, uh, so seven people in total, departed Iran for Qatar uh, a week ago this past Monday. We've covered this in the past on the show, but the terms are that an equal number of Iranians in, in U.S. custody were to be released. I haven't seen any information on that actually happening yet or who those people are. We may never actually know their identities. It's, it's possible both the U.S. and Iran will want to keep them, keep quiet about that. But also, uh, it, it's involved the transfer of uh, oh, but somewhere between $6 billion and $7 billion in Iranian funds out of South Korean banks to Qatar, which is acting as a sort of check on the use of that money. And the Iranians will be limited to using it for non-sanctioned goods. That means things like food, medicine, et cetera. Um, and the Qataris supposedly will be the check on that. They'll, they'll make sure that uh, the money is not spent on anything that uh, the U.S. would, to which the U.S. would object. Um, again, it's it, you know we've talked about this before. I don't want to spend dwell on it, but uh, it did happen. Uh, those five prisoners are, I believe, back in the U.S. at this point. I hope they didn't leave them stuck in Qatar. Not, not, no offense to our uh, fine Qatari listeners. Uh, I did live there for a little while, so I know wherever I speak. Anyway, uh, I believe they're back in the U.S. at this point. Maybe we should relocate to Qatar. 
I bet you they have good tax laws for there. Oh, yeah. The tax situation. <laughs> yeah. You, you've got some good ideas there, Danny. Let's let's talk I'm about that. I'm thinking 40 years ahead. Uh, Derek, <laughs> why don't you give us an update on what's going on in Nagorno-Karabakh? Uh, yes, uh, people, I hope listened to the, the interview that I did last week on uh, the Azerbaijani military operation war, two day war, uh, anti terrorist operation, if you believe their rhetoric uh, that went on uh, last week and, and ended with the Karabakh regional government essentially capitulating. Uh, it has now officially capitulated on Thursday. Uh, the de facto president, I guess, of the Karabakh Republic or the Artsakh Arts Republic signed a decree essentially dissolving that government as of January 1st. Uh, so there will be no secessionist or uh, autonomous, whatever, Karabakh state beyond that point. There's been, since the interview last week, the main development, I would say, has been uh, the exodus of Armenians out of Karabakh, indeed out of Azerbaijan altogether, uh, into Armenia at this point. And again, I'm, I'm uh, citing the latest news that I've seen uh, on Thursday. Uh, it, the reports were that at least 75,000, over 75,000 at this point, uh, refugees had left Karabakh and had entered Armenia. That number will almost certainly be higher by the time anybody listens to this. And uh, it, it, it's a strong possibility that the entire population uh, of the region, which is estimated anywhere between 120,000, around 140,000 uh, at the high end, will, will have left Karabakh and, and entered Armenia simply uh, out of concern about what it might mean uh, for them to live under direct Azerbaijani rule. The Azerbaijani government has, and Azerbaijani officials have, have sort of mouthed all the right rhetoric here about integrating Armenians into their multi-ethnic state. Uh, as there's, there's no reason to really believe any of that. And, and if I were uh, living in Karabakh as an Armenian, I would not believe it. The, the Karabakh Armenians have been uh, demonized as public enemy number one in Azerbaijan for t- so long. It's, it's difficult to imagine uh, that they would be well-treated uh, at least in the short term. So it's not surprising to see uh, this mass exodus. Thank you, Derek. Um, now, two of my favorite countries are fighting, India and Canada. Tell us what's going on. Uh, yeah, so uh, the Canadian government last week expelled the Indian government's uh, intelligence chief uh, at its uh, Canadian embassy, uh, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau then accused the Indian government of having been responsible for the murder of a Sikh, uh, I mean, de- depending on your perspective, he's different things, activist, independence leader, terrorist, according to the Indians, uh, a man named Hardeep Singh Nijar. Uh, he was killed in British Columbia back in June, and, and the uh, Canadians are accusing the Indian government of essentially carrying out a hit on foreign soil. Trudeau, to my knowledge, has not yet made public any evidence and uh it's possible you know there could be reasons for that um intelligence related reasons i guess uh the indian government has since uh in denying uh, in addition to denying that it had any involvement while also doing a sort of if i did it thing and saying you know if we were responsible it would have been justified because this guy was a terrorist uh they have stopped processing visa applications in canada uh, and, uh, so the spat is, is still going. The U S is in a, a little bit of an uncomfortable position here in that 
Canada is obviously a NATO ally, but India, from just a pure realpolitik perspective, is far more important to U.S. strategic interests as we continue the new Cold War against China. Uh, and so it's a little bit of a, a tough place for the U.S. to be in. Uh, apparently it was U.S. intelligence as part of the Five Eyes program uh, that informed the Canadians uh, about uh, the Indian, about alleged Indian involvement in this murder. Uh, so again, a little bit, little bit uncomfortable. I think Anthony Blinken was uh, either in New Delhi or meeting with Indian, Indian officials on Thursday, and he was, there was some question as to whether or not he would raise this issue. Uh, and I don't think that's taken place yet as, as we're recording. So uh, I can't say what, if anything, uh, went down there. Thanks, Derek. Um, let's do an update on that story of the American soldier who defected to North Korea. Things don't yes. seem to be going too well for him right now. Uh, well, he's back in U.S. custody. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, Travis King, you may recall back in July, a uh, U.S. private who was stationed in South Korea, essentially got himself on a tour uh, of the South Korean side of the demilitarized zone and ran across the DMC, DMZ into North Korea and turned himself over effectively to North Korean authorities. He was facing military discipline. He was about to be sent back to the U.S. He'd committed, I, I believe, uh, an assault uh, in South Korea and had uh, served some time there and was being sent back to the U.S. for further discipline. Uh, so, you know, by outward appearances, at least, he had defected uh, and was not terribly interested in coming home. He has now been returned to the U.S. Um, the Swedish government uh, brokered a deal that, that came to fruition, or at least was announced on Wednesday, uh, that transferred King back to U.S. custody via China, interestingly enough. And the U.S., uh, the Biden administration thanked both the Swedish and Chinese governments for their assistance in repatriating King. Uh, supposedly, according to the reporting, he seems to be happy to be heading home, uh, which, again, uh, seems a little incongruous with the, the way that he wound up in North Korea. Uh, but perhaps he didn't uh, didn't like what was going on. Now, the reporting also around this has suggested that the North Koreans, uh, and of course, the Biden administration has insisted that they didn't trade anything, it didn't give any concessions to North Korea to get King back. Uh, it, the reporting that I've seen has made it sound like the North Koreans were going to expel King anyway, which is somewhat unusual. It's possible that they interrogated him and, and realized as a private, uh, he didn't really offer much in terms of intelligence value and they wouldn't necessarily be able to get anything significant in trade. And so they uh, decided to release him when uh, prodded by the uh, the Swedes and or the, the Chinese government. But I don't know. I don't know the rationale for, for that or if it's even true uh, that the North Koreans were going to expel him anyway. And it just so happened that uh, they agreed to this. But a uh, lot still unknown about this. But he is out of North Korea and uh, is either back in the U.S., I believe, as of uh, when we recorded this, he was had just arrived uh, not that long ago in the U.S. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about Niger and the French are withdrawing. What went on there? Yes, uh, Emmanuel Macron, president of France, announced on Sunday that he would be withdrawing French military forces from Niger, along with Sylvain Ité, the Nigerian ambassador, the French ambassador to Niger. Ité did wind up uh, leaving Niger. He arrived back in France on Wednesday. Uh, this is about a month after the 
ruling junta in Niger gave him 48 hours to leave the country. Uh, so he's a little overdue. Uh, but they did finally recall him. It, the French government had accused the Nigerians of basically holding him and his staff hostage in the French embassy in Niamey. Uh, but uh, and so they've they've finally broken down and, and decided to recall him, despite the fact that uh, officially the French government does not acknowledge the the junta's legitimacy or its uh, power or its authority to expel a diplomat. Relations, obviously, between France and the junta are not good. Uh, as I say, Macron also announced that he would be withdrawing some 1,500 French military personnel uh, that are currently stationed, who are currently stationed in Niger, He'd be withdrawing them from the country. Uh, they're somewhat in limbo. I don't believe he's announced a timetable, although the sense is it will be probably by the end of the year they'll be gone. Presumably, Macron would like to find some other West African country in which to base these forces who are there in a counterterrorism, counterinsurgency capacity, uh, rather than bringing them back to France. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Chad seems to be the leading candidate if he's going to do that, but I don't know if he's uh, made any efforts in that regard. The junta, I should say, banned French aircraft from Nigerian airspace on Saturday, just a blanket ban on military and commercial aircraft and just French uh, aircraft. And and I think, you know, that factors that didn't it didn't I don't think it factored into Macron's decision, but it does show just how bad the relationship has become uh, between this former French colony and former kind of pearl of Franc Afrique, the Franc Afrique program. Uh, how how far the the relationship has collapsed uh, between that country and France since the the coup? Thanks, Derek. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about uh, Ukraine. There's been a lot going on there recently. Yes, uh, there's have been reports. Ukrainian officials are claiming that they broke through the first layer of Russian anti tank defenses in a near a village called Verbove in Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, which, if it's true, would represent the deepest penetration that they've made into Russian lines since the start of their counteroffensive. Uh, it's it's hard to verify anything that's happening on the front line uh, independently, but y- you may see. I mean, if it's if it, they've indeed made a breakthrough, there's a lot that that they still have to slog through. This is just the first layer of defenses. You've got still got a lot of heavily mined areas, and uh, you know the Russian artillery and and air power is still. Uh, you know, it's, it's still tilted in their favor on the battlefield. So, you know, it it may not result in any major movements. On the other hand, you know, if it if it does, then we'll know for sure that they have indeed uh, made a breakthrough. Uh, now, the Ukrainians spent the weekend bombarding Crimea, uh, in particular the base of the Russian Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. They had claimed, uh, as of, I believe, Sunday or Monday, uh, that the Russian Black Sea Fleet commander, a man named Viktor Sokolov, uh, was one of uh, 34 people killed in that bombardment. Uh, the Russians then produced video on Tuesday of Sokolov participating in a defense ministry meeting. They've since, I think, released other images, uh, at least purportedly showing him still alive and well. Uh, in the wake of that uh, that incident, and the Ukrainians have uh, walked back their claim that he was killed. So, uh, you know, a little a uh, little premature, perhaps, in in uh, making that claim. The other thing that I would mention uh, has to do with the provision of U.S. arms to Ukraine. Uh, there's a couple couple of 
pieces of news here. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, revealed on Monday that the first batch of U.S. M1 Abrams tanks have arrived in Ukraine. Uh, the New York Times reported that this was about two tank platoons, which means roughly eight to ten tanks. The U.S. is committed to supply uh, at least 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine eventually. Uh, that'll happen over time. It's not clear when the Ukrainians actually have designs on using them. Uh, they require fairly specialized maintenance, and the Ukrainians may not yet be ready uh, to provide that. They, they still may need some support from the U.S. to develop that capacity. And there's also a concern about sort of just throwing them out there in the front line to be pulverized by Russian artillery. They're, they're sort of uh, perhaps too valuable to the Ukrainians at this point to, to risk uh, in that kind of operation. So they have to figure out exactly when and where uh, to use them. Uh, the other thing I would mention is on Friday, uh, the uh, NBC News reported that Joe Biden had told Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who visited Washington following his speech to the U.N. General Assembly last week, told him in confidence, I guess, that the U.S. will be sending Ukraine the Army tactical missile system. This is the long-range artillery that can be loaded into the multiple rocket launchers that the U.S. has already been sending Ukraine. It has a range of about 300 kilometers, which is uh, 180 or so miles, give or take. There is an issue of supply. The U.S. doesn't stock a, a huge number of these weapons, so it will probably have to uh, engage some of our finest uh, defense contractors to make more of them. I'm sure they'll be happy to do that. Now, the administration hasn't publicly acknowledged uh, that it's given any sort of go-ahead. According to the administration, they're still deliberating uh, over whether to supply this weapon, which, of course, they've been hesitant ostensibly because of concerns that it might be used to attack targets inside Russia. But uh, this report is out there that Biden's sort of given Zelensky his assurance uh, that it'll happen. Derek, what do you think about the whole Canada fiasco? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't want to bring it up because I don't even know that it's news, but the, it, it is fascinating. Uh, the Canadian Parliament, I'm sure you've heard by now, uh, you Derek, know, did a, take a whole off an SS, good or bad. <laughs> standing ovation uh, for a 98-year-old guy who fought in the Waffen-SS in World War II because he fought against Russia, which, you know, of course, is makes him a good guy. Let's not interrogate that any further and ask what was somebody who was fighting against Russia in World War II doing. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, the fallout has been pretty steep. I mean, Justin Trudeau's had to apologize. The Speaker of the Canadian Parliament resigned uh, over it. I mean, it's just, just a complete catastrophe, just total self-inflicted, you know, insane uh, uh, screw up on the part of these guys uh, to not ask basic questions about who this guy was or what he was actually doing uh, during World War II. I don't, I, you know, I, I mean, this is, this is something that's happened over and over again since this war started. And I think it's indicative of the fact that people need simple stories, and I, when I say people, I mean politicians and journalists, like simple stories. They like good guys and bad guys, and so they like the Ukraine is good, everything about Ukraine is good, Russia bad, everything about Russia is bad. And that's how you wind up with, you know, saluting Waffen-SS members with a standing ovation in Parliament. That's how you wind up uh, with newspaper, you know, 
odes in, in Western newspapers to Ukrainian military units full of guys with Nazi tattoos and various other wonderful insignia. So it's just, you know, it just keeps happening. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't expect it to stop, but uh, it is it is kind of amazing that people keep stepping on this rake. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk now about Colombia and the ceasefire with an ex-FARC faction. Uh, yes, the Colombian government has reached a ceasefire they announced on Tuesday with uh, a group called uh, Estado Mayor Central, which is a faction, one of the most prominent factions of ex-FARC uh, fighters, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, uh, fighters who kind of rejected the the 2016 peace deal between FARC and the Colombian government. Uh, it's been, you know, very active. Uh, and this is another kind of moment, of, another achievement, another moment of progress for Gustavo Petro's peace initiative, the president of Colombia, who has been trying to negotiate ceasefires and then settlements uh, with most of Colombia's various armed groups. Now, uh, this is just a ceasefire. It's 10 months to start. It's meant to kick in next month. Uh, and the government and the uh, FARC EMC will begin at that time negotiations on a more lasting peace deal. Uh, this is the second time that Petro's government has reached a ceasefire with uh, Estado Mayor Central. And, and the first one, which was announced around the new year, uh, fell apart in May. So that's something to keep an eye on. It does come in the wake of the uh, government's ceasefire with the National Liberation Army or ELN, the largest of Colombia's rebel groups, uh, which kicked in uh, back in August or last month, I guess, uh, it's still September. Uh, so again, s just another uh, in a string of, of I would I would say successes, hopefully they'll last uh, and they'll lead to a, a real long term decline in violence. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's end on the new Cold War. New Cold War. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a piece that's in the Wall Street Journal on Thursday. You, you sort of reporting based on anonymous U.S. officials that that uh, our friends, the anonymous, uh, you know, whoever that the these negotiations of these trips that the Biden administration has been making to China where they've sent Anthony Blinken, they've sent John Kerry, the, the climate czar, they've sent uh, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, uh, you know, a number of senior administration cabinet officials or cabinet level officials have been going to China to kind of re rebuild that relationship, which really fell apart earlier this year. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, this is all building toward a summit between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. They're planning, apparently, a visit by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi to Washington uh, next month sometime. And that visit would be geared primarily toward laying the groundwork for a summit. And I don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, the planning for this is still in the very early stages. Uh, so there's no indication of where or when or any of those details. But it does. I mean, it, it is, I think, good news that the relationship is at least back to where it was or seems to be back to where it was or almost back to where it was before the great spy balloon catastrophe of 2023. Uh, so, you know, uh, not not uh, not terrible news, at least for a change. Uh, what about this Pacific Island summit? 
Yes, the Biden administration opened its second annual Pacific Island Summit on Monday. Uh, this is the uh, a- annual, or I guess it's going to become biannual now uh, after this one, uh, event where the U.S. collects uh, leaders of the Pacific Island nations. They come to the U.S. for uh, whoever is in charge to, uh, you know, explain that the U.S. cares about you. And, and we're not like that bad China that's doing bad things in the Pacific Islands. We're doing good things. We're nice. We wanna, you want to be friends with us. Uh, not that we would ever, you know, sort of openly <laughs> put it in those terms. Uh, but this year's uh, summit has included uh, the announcement that the U.S. is uh, extending diplomatic recognition to the Cook Islands and Niue, two countries that are have and have been uh, sort of managed as far as U.S. diplomacy out of the New Zealand embassy. Uh, they are both in, in sort of free association agreements with New Zealand. Uh, it is unclear to me uh, what that's actually going to mean. The administration isn't going to build embassies in those countries, so I don't know uh, materially what's going to change, but there is this, I guess, recognition of their independence that we're uh, extending to them. It also included the announcement of around $200 million in various projects for the Pacific Islands region, humanitarian, economic, security. The Biden administration still hasn't made good on the money it pledged at last year's summit, mostly because Congress uh, has not approved those promises. So this $200 million is probably theoretical at this point. We'll see uh, if it actually comes through. And of course, folks are probably aware that the U.S. is heading into a showdown, a government shutdown uh, over nothing, as far as I can tell. Uh, so nothing is going to get funded for a while, at least, uh, probably. But we'll see how that plays out. Those clowns in Congress are up to it again. Actually, Boy, I they to, are some clowns. I lied, man. Let's talk about Senator. Bob yeah, there is one clown in Menendez. particular we should talk about. Senator Bob Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, the former now or temporarily former chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he and his wife, Nadine, have been indicted for allegedly taking hundreds of thousands of dollars, some of it apparently in literal gold bars, uh, in bribes uh, in exchange for greasing the skids for, for some reason, Egyptian in my mind, interest in Congress. I, I keep on hearing like Mr. Goodbar, like gigantic amounts of chocolate. I hear <laughs> away with that you know that would be less conspicuous than having gold bars in your house uh menendez has defended uh that by saying i guess that he likes to keep gold in the house because his family had a hard time with castro the castro regime in cuba uh that is really a reach if there ever was one but um you know i guess he's gone with that uh, Menendez, uh, has, you know, as I say, was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, so a tremendously influential figure, uh, in foreign policy making in Washington and, and especially within the Democratic Party. This is despite the fact that his foreign policy views range from, uh, mediocre to downright lousy. Uh, he has been a major power broker, so it's unsurprising that somebody would uh, try to wave some money in front of him. And of course, he's had multiple corruption allegations leveled at him over the years. Uh, it's, it's sort of a where there's smoke, there's fire type of thing. But this is, uh, this has gone a little further than those past allegations. As I say, he's been indicted. He was arraigned, uh, in fact, in Manhattan, uh, on Wednesday. And there was a piece we're going to, I think we're going to be talking to, to Ken Klippenstein from the intercept. Uh, he did a piece, uh, at the intercept about, the scandal that suggested 
that you know, based on some of the things that were have been reported, uh, Menendez maybe wasn't just doing influence peddling on behalf of the Egyptian government. He may have actually been spying on the on behalf of the Egyptian government. Apparently, they asked oh, him man, in addition to, to sort of those intelligence reports. I, I mean, yeah. in addition to sort of you know ha- asking him. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, so in addition to asking him to to kind of wield his influence on Egypt's behalf and in and, and, uh, terms of weapon sales and other issues in D.C., they apparently asked him to provide information like staffing levels at the U.S. Embassy in Cairo or information on the embassy staff. That's, I mean, that's espionage stuff. And apparently the FBI is now investigating. It's opened a counterintelligence investigation uh, into this alongside the corruption case. Uh, so uh, this could get quite serious. Uh, Menendez has stepped down as chair of the committee temporarily, but he has not resigned his seat. There have been calls for him to do so, but uh, he's made it pretty clear that he doesn't intend to do that. Uh, So he's going to be sticking around and uh, it'll be uh, wild to see how this plays out. Well, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Derek Davison, thank you so much. All you listeners, thank you for listening. And before we go, um, I just want to say um, we, we hope that our very good friend Matt Chrisman uh, recovers well. Uh, we're thinking of him here. He was one of the first guests on the show. He's one of my best friends, uh, and he was always a, just a supporter of us and one of our, our, our great minds. So we're just, you know, American Prestige is thinking of him, and, and Matt, get well soon, man. Uh, hope, hope, hope. Absolutely. Bye. Bye.